Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Rights Survival Guide, a podcast exploring how human rights can survive and thrive in the 21st century. In today's episode, we will be focusing on juvenile justice, and more precisely on the international dimension of such justice. The specific mechanisms for administering juvenile justice have varied over time among societies and even among jurisdictions within countries. To put this topic in a historical perspective, Children offenders were tried in the same courts as adults until 1899, when the Juvenile Court of Law was founded in Chicago. This led to the creation of juvenile courts, also known as children and family courts, in other states in the early 20th century. Since then, the legal protection of minors has become one of the priorities in the fields of human rights and democracies around the world. I'm Lucita Forin from IPHR. I'm very happy to be joined today by Francis Sheehan. Francis, welcome and thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Lucy. I'm very pleased to be here. For those who don't know, Francis is a lawyer and child rights expert with more than 17 years experience working on children's rights law, policy and programming in Egypt, Kazakhstan, Kosovo and South Sudan, among other countries. Her experience includes work for UNICEF, Save the Children International and Penal Reform International. I'd like to kick off this discussion with a broad introductory question. For those who are not familiar with the topic, how would you define juvenile justice? What are the main elements and goals? And maybe it'd be interesting to see how it fits within children's rights broadly. So I think when we're, we're thinking about juvenile justice and thinking about definitions, it's really striking and telling that there are certain commonalities that per persist in high income settings, low income settings globally around the kind of children who come into contact with juvenile justice systems. So the majority are charged with petty crimes, the majority are first time offenders, and the majority are male as well. And really, there are many, many children who belong to groups that really shouldn't be within the justice system at all. So many children, you know, they've fled home as a result of, of violence or neglect. They've been abandoned. They may be homeless, living, working on the street. And, and poverty as well is a really significant characteristic. Um, so it's children from these kind of deprived, marginalized communities who are really disproportionately represented and their exposure to crime sort of reflects a blurring of boundaries between children who commit offences and children who are actually in need of protection. And so the result is that it's children who are in need of support from child protection and welfare agencies instead find that their conduct is actually criminalised. So for example, girls who are living on the street may come into conflict with the law because of sexual exploitation. I think when we're thinking about the definition of juvenile justice, we need to think about how justice systems can respond to in a way that understands and in a way that acknowledges the root causes of a child's offending behaviour and takes into account a much more sort of holistic perspective of that child's life. Um, and a, a justice system that's able to provide subsequently really effective interventions that are tailored to individual circumstances and that are focused on rehabilitating the child ultimately and reintegrating them back into their communities, which all sounds fine, possibly quite controversial to many people, but how do you actually put that into practice? And you asked about sort of the framing of the kind of child rights uh, component of this. And of course, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child 
is the absolutely primary international instrument setting out state obligations in this area. And as I'm sure you're aware, it's been ratified by every country in the world, save for the United States, and really gives us a very excellent starting point. And in relation to juvenile justice, what the CLC does, it encourages above all the creation of a specialised child justice system um, with express obligations on states to promote children's rehabilitation and their reintegration. Thank you. So you've touched upon already um, international legal standards. Um, I know that the Havana rules are also essential in terms of juvenile detention uh, in that process. Could you elaborate on these a little bit more and whether there are also other important frameworks to mention apart from the UN? Yes, of course. So so we have the CRC, um, which has really absolutely sort of critical fundamental principles about the way that children in justice systems should be treated. Uh, they're entitled to be treated fairly, full respect for their human dignity. As adults, they have a right to a fair trial, but they also have the right to be treated in a child-friendly way. They should be able to learn from their mistakes and should receive support to prevent their reoffending. Um, and this should all be done in a proportionate and, and respectful manner. Um, I think while we're while we're talking about the CRC, it's important to remember their they're universally applicable principles. They apply to all children. It, this is regardless of the severity of the offence. Um, so, for example, it applies to children who are prosecuted for terrorism-related offences as much as it does for children who are being prosecuted for you know, relatively petty minor theft, for example. And it applies regardless of a child's citizenship status within the jurisdiction within which they're being prosecuted. Uh, and they're also non-derogable. So they apply even in times of emergency, even in times of armed conflict and during public health emergencies, such as the one that we're, we're currently living through. But as well as the CRC, there are a number of other binding international treaties, uh, for example, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, and a number of non-binding, but nonetheless extremely influential standards, which kind of reinforce and elaborate on the CRC's provisions. So you have the Beijing rules, uh, the standard minimum rules for the administration of juvenile justice, which focus very much on the importance of having this specialised justice system for children. You have the RIAD guidelines, which focus very much on prevention of offending. They call it delinquency, which is a, a rather old-fashioned term, indicative of the fact that the RIAD guidelines were, were adopted in 1990, so a very long time ago. And you have the Havana rules, which are the rules for the protection of juveniles deprived of their liberty, which focus, of course, very much on detention as a measure of last resort. Um, just one further point on this kind of framework, uh, you'll see these standards are all, they're old, they're all over 30 years old now. The Beijing rules even older, they date from 1985, and a lot in the world has changed since then, socially, culturally, economically, the status of childhood and so on. And there are new challenges that have emerged, not least, you know, offending in the online space, for example, that no one could have predicted in 1990. But the CRC is very much a kind of living, a relevant instrument because it's, it's updated by different means, by the use of concluding observations, 
by the Committee on the Rights of the Child, by their jurisprudence, their kind of growing body of case law, and also by the fact that they produce general comments. Um, And most recently, general comment number 24 was produced in 2019, which gives us a very clear and contemporary framework for action on child justice issues. I mean, in terms of the Havana rules, um, they give us sort of very detailed, very clear, and I think still extremely relevant and pertinent recommendations concerning how children should be treated when they are deprived of their liberty. Uh, They're based on the principle of detention as a measure of last resort and for the shortest appropriate period of time and emphasise throughout the importance of children being separated from adults. Um, And there are another number of kind of key features of the Havana rules. Uh, They encourage small facilities which feeds into this idea that children require individualised treatment, which is extremely difficult to effectively deliver in very large uh, institutions. They emphasise the importance for children of receiving regular visits and remaining in contact with parents, guardians, friends, members of their community. Um, They stress that children have the right to complain. I think this is something that's often overlooked and the kind of sort of support and assistance that children might need in order to make a complaint. They stress the importance of having specialised staff working with children who have an understanding of child protection issues and have an understanding of the rights of children. They have a, a section which is explored further in the Bangkok rules, but they also uh, identify that girls who are deprived of their liberty are in a really particular category because they're such a tiny proportion of the prison population often. Um, So ensuring that their needs are adequately met uh, in terms of educational opportunities, privacy, hygiene requirements, access to specialised healthcare and so on can be a real challenge. And the Havana rules set out some requirements specifically for girls. And they also touch upon the issue of disciplinary punishments um, for children. So absolute prohibitions on the use of corporal punishments, placement in a dark cell, use of closed or solitary confinements, and also the prohibition on the restriction or denial of contact with family members as a punishment for children in recognition of the fact that this can be particularly damaging for them. Okay. Yeah, no, you've spoken of challenges, and I think an important question here, given the current context, which you also pointed to, um, what new challenges did the COVID-19 pandemic create or exacerbate for juvenile justice and the treatment of children in detention in particular? I think... In terms of COVID, it's kind of quite early to say. It's all quite new. And I don't think that the research has been done at an in-depth level. Nonetheless, what what I do see in my work are certain kind of key issues which keep emerging around, uh, around children in contact with the justice system and particularly children when they're in detention. So, for example... There's been an increase in arrests owing to breaches of measures that have been put in place to uh, halt the spread of COVID, such as curfews. So children living on the street, for example, often have nowhere to go. 
they simply have no option other to be um, in violation of breach of curfews. So there's been a sort of spike of, of those kind of arrests and subsequent prosecutions. And when we think about children who are deprived of their liberty, of course, their children are in locked facilities and are at greater risk of contracting and, and spreading the disease. I think this is a, a slightly theoretical at the moment. I wouldn't be able to point to actual concrete research on that issue, but it's a clear that the disease is spread in indoors in confined spaces where there are large numbers of people. It, the sort of measures that have been put in place to control the spread of the virus has also impacted on justice systems. So they've slowed down the processing of cases, which has meant that some children have spent much longer in pretrial detention than they might otherwise have done. And when children are actually in detention, often there have been reduced staff numbers, which has really impacted on the provision of educational and rehabilitation activities and vocational training and so on. It has meant increased use of solitary confinement. Uh, it's limited really drastically children's ability to have face-to-face -face contact with family and friends. Um, and in some settings, there's been some very innovative use of technology in order to bridge that gap, but there's never any substitute for that kind of face-to-face -face contact, which has a very different quality and nature to it, and is often of a longer duration as well. So we've also seen, you know, some countries have responded very positively with the use of pardons or early release of children, or by taking the aspects of the pandemic into account at the point of making decisions about bail applications or about sentencing, um, taking into account the fact that there will be restrictions on a child's ability to access the kind of uh, rehabilitative services that they need, for example. But there's still a lot more that could be done on those issues, both in terms of having some kind of moratorium on children actually entering facilities at the moment. And we're still at a very uncertain stage as we're talking about the progress of the virus. Also releasing all children who can be safely released uh, and ensuring that proper structures are put in place for their safe release and for ensuring that all requirements around reintegration are there, employment, housing, contact with families and so on. Um, and of course, there's still a lot of work to be done around protecting the health and well-being of any children who do remain in detention as well. Yeah. And um, because you mentioned the people who work with children, especially in juvenile detention, could you maybe, there's a group that we don't talk so much about are the medical workers, especially in countries where ill treatment is still prevalent uh, in juvenile detention. Could you maybe outline some of the main challenges um, facing this group today and maybe the, as well during the pandemic? For medical workers specifically, I mean, they play such a pivotal role um, in supporting children with healthcare needs. Um, and of course, you know, we've sort of touched upon this issue that for children in detention, they have are likely to have much more complex and challenging health care needs than their peers in the community. There was some recent research done in a Lancet article which found that uh, primarily in, in high income settings there was a much higher prevalence of health problems, risks and conditions in detained adolescents and amongst their peers 
um, particularly in terms of mental disorders, but also substance use, self-harm and neurodevelopmental disabilities. These children arrive in detention with these very challenging healthcare needs. And of course, the experience of detention exacerbates often, particularly when we're talking about mental health disorders. The healthcare system that's available in detention centres needs really significant resourcing. It needs highly skilled and motivated healthcare workers to provide the kind of care that's needed. Whereas, of course, in practice, what we often see is that these positions are undervalued and under-resourced and often under-remunerated as well. Okay, but they are, they remain incredibly crucial to that process. Absolutely, really pivotal, I think. In many respects. Yeah. And another interesting and important question, I think, is what are the long term effects of imprisonment on child offenders? And what should rehabilitation look like in an ideal situation? I think, as you mentioned, that there are obviously different groups um, of children, but mainly some are, you know, from similar backgrounds, or you always find maybe similar children being detained, or so what are the long-term effects of their imprisonment, maybe. Maybe it depends on different social categories, maybe it depends on gender, maybe it depends on their situation, but is there an overall impact? It depends maybe on countries. I mean, I think maybe, you know, we need to, to step back a bit and actually remind ourselves that all children have rights everywhere and children who are in detention, they don't lose those rights. They're entitled to all of the rights enjoyed by their peers in the community, apart, of course, from the fact that they're deprived of their liberty. Um, And childhood and adolescence is a really critical time of development. And the kind of violations of rights which, which take place when children are deprived of their liberty can therefore have an irreversible impact on their lives. Deprivations of food can lead to irreversible stunting. Deprivation of education can have really long-term impacts on their future employment prospects, similarly with vocational training. And of course, you know, these children by definition are isolated from their broader communities. They're removed from their families and their community networks. And that can also have a really long-lasting impact as a, you know, it amounts to a kind of disruption, if not a severance of their supportive or otherwise networks within communities. All of these issues can really compound the sort of social and economic disadvantages and marginalisation that they started with when they entered into the institution in the first place. Yeah. In terms of rehabilitation then maybe you can provide I understand it's a very broad question but maybe you can provide examples of countries who have successful rehabilitation systems um, lessons that can be learned from such places for others who are trying to improve their systems I think the really important issue is to sort of break down institutions where children are deprived of their liberty as separate and closed as far as possible Institutions which uh, are open to different services, open to different communities, open to different agencies, NGOs, where there's people coming and going, you know, the disinfectant of sunlight, if you like, is absolutely critical when we're thinking about rehabilitation. Not just 
in terms of the actual provision of services, in terms of the, you know, being able to access education and being able to learn a skill or, or acquire, you know, something that will really help with employment, but also just to break down the kind of stigma that uh, kind of adheres to children when they are deprived of their liberty in this way. So I think ideally only a very, very small number of children, of course, should be deprived of their liberty in the first place. And even for those children, we should be thinking much more about having an openness and an engagement and an involvement of the communities within which they're situated. So while we're talking about maybe ideal situations, although that's not the easiest to answer, what would you say are the key steps um, that, to ensure transition towards child-friendly systems? And are there any lessons to be learned? Or I think it's quite interesting to think about, in 2019, the global study on children deprived of their liberty was produced, which gives us quite a good, clear picture of what's kind of happening and what the fault lines are in terms of children when they're deprived of their liberty. I mean, it actually deals with a whole range of different aspects of deprivation. So it talks about, you know, immigration, national security, children deprived of their liberty in armed conflict and so on. But in the context we're looking at, criminal justice, it concludes that there are far too many children in detention. I think it's 1.4 million annually over the course of, a, of, a, of an entire year. 1.4 million children who they estimate are detained in police custody, pretrial detention, post-conviction. And they suggest that there are sort of a number of reasons why this figure is so high and why detention is not being used as a measure of last resort and is not being used for the shortest appropriate period of time, which is what the CRC tells us should be happening. And I think one of those, one of the reasons they provide is around um, attitudes towards the minimum age of criminal responsibility. So far too many countries have very low minimum age of criminal responsibility. I think 120 countries have a, an age which is below 14. And 14 is the sort of absolute bare minimum that's, that's recommended by the Committee on the Rights of the Child. So when we're thinking about steps towards a much more child-friendly system, that's an absolutely key area. So, you know, advocacy around either maintaining the minimum age of criminal responsibility you've got or, or resisting vehemently um, efforts to lower it, which as, uh, you know, for example, a few years back, there was a, a big push in the Philippines to reduce the minimum age um, from 15 to 12. And why? What's the um, incentive for the governments to do that? Well, it was all, I think, very much part of the war on drugs there was a, a suggestion that children were being used as mules and children under 15 were particularly being targeted on, you know, the expectation that they're under the minimum age of criminal responsibility and flying under the radar of prosecution authorities as a consequence. So that was the kind of justification that was given. I think that was rebutted quite robustly by civil society evidence suggesting that this wasn't the case at all and that the damage that would that would ensue from raising the minimum age uh, would be far greater 
you know, there was a, a big outcry around that and very targeted and concerted civil society response to the issue as well. Um, I think the, the other issue that we really need to think about is uh, having a specialised system and what that actually means. And the global study found that many countries still don't have one at all, or where they do have one, it's sort of a system on paper, it isn't properly implemented. There isn't a real kind of strong sense that this justice system isn't something a kind of add on to the adult system, but is actually completely separate and distinct with a different culture around it, different ways of working. So Often you do see a really nice Child Rights Act with a lovely chapter on a specialised system, but it's just not properly organised. The coordination isn't there between child protection authorities and justice authorities. The, The resourcing isn't there. And as a consequence, children end up being dealt with essentially in systems that are designed by adults and that are designed for adults. Um, Another key area is to really focus on, I think, is not just legislative reform. Of course, it's sufficient, but not enough, but also really focusing on the implementation of specialised justice systems, which requires a lot of data, actually. And I think that's another key area is, is ensuring that we have the proper data collection we need to inform law and policy, to monitor how it's working, to have a really clear picture of what's happening so we can plan accordingly, which can be as simple as, you know, setting up a sort of login procedure for the prosecution service so that they, in prosecution services which aren't specialised for children, but where they actually log in every time that they encounter a child and those numbers are collated and go to a sort of centralised, computerised place. Another important area is around diversion. We've sort of touched a little bit upon this as well. There are many cases, many um, interventions around the world involving diversion, which are extremely effective. Uh, There's some evidence to suggest that that it's more effective in terms of preventing reoffending than other interventions uh, within the formal justice procedures. Building capacity is always a a good starting point. Training, uh, this question of specialisation is also applies to the professionals working in the system, whether that be social workers, probation officers, judges, prosecutors, defence lawyers. And also, I think, particularly in terms of of staff working in detention centres, they're so often doing a really, really difficult job and yet it has a, a very low status. So I think with, you know, sort of little reward, little progress or advancement in their career. And, and as I say, little status. So I think that would be a, a priority area as well, is creating a sort of professional cadre for professionals working in detention centres. OK, yeah, there's a long way to go then in terms of creating this ideal justice system. But in terms of recommendations then to governments or Policymakers, are there specific recommendations that you would have or for them, for, for policymakers? I think there are certain areas which are really overlooked. And one is prevention. So um, whether that be, you know, primary, secondary or tertiary. But you know, as we, we've talked about a lot, these child justice systems 
they too routinely, they process and punish the children of the poor. There are sort of undeniable correlations across the world in terms of um, poverty and social and economic inequality and children's involvement in justice systems. And that needs to be dealt with at a really sort of systemic level in terms of prevention. And I think also a focus on interventions that are located kind of outside of the formal justice system. So again, I think that would be an absolute priority. Interventions which focus on children's strengths, so rather than exacerbating underlying issues or underlying problems in a child's life by stigmatizing them and sending them through a formal justice procedure, you know, you can achieve a lot more through the use of diversionary measures, which focuses on strengths and develop strengths. And I think uh, in terms of policymakers um, being led, guided by evidence and being influenced as little as possible by the sort of crude and distorted media betrayals um, of children who come into conflict with the law that we often see. Okay, I think that's all on the side of my questions. Thank you so much for this interesting discussion, for your insight and input. I've personally learned a lot and I'm sure listeners will too. Um, If there's anything you'd like to add, otherwise we can end this podcast. Thanks, Lucy. No, I mean, it's such an interesting area within which to work. I feel very privileged and lucky to, to be able to work in this area. It includes so many different issues about sort of constructions of childhood and different attitudes and approaches towards childhood and adolescence as well. And there are a lot of interventions that can be put in place, which are really quite, you know, they're, they're not heavy in resourcing. It's, it's so much more about people's attitudes and ensuring that you communicate well with children and that you have a sort of child-friendly approach to work that can really help. So it's, as I say, not often about so much resources or infrastructure It's about an attitude and an approach and ensuring that you get that specialised justice system in place. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today and have a nice day. You too. Um, This is the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining and stay tuned for more episodes of the Human Rights Survival Guide.